Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another Thin Air podcast. Uh, it is March 15th, 2013, and um, this is kind of a follow-up to the podcast from just a couple of days ago, um, which was discussing this concept of the power of limitations. Um, as usually happens, I uh, got done with that podcast and uploaded it and started listening, and uh, just there were a couple things that I wanted to uh, explore a little deeper or maybe uh, qualify a little bit better. I think um, in that conversation, which kind of adopted this musical analogy um, of how musical music in general, in order for it to be music, uh, essentially has to have some sort of limitation applied to it, whether that is um, a scale, which is a group of notes, or um, you know even the limitations of an instrument, but really how that is the power of the instrument is that working with uh, limitations provides a framework for creativity and taking that idea and kind of applying it to um, one particular situation which was the situation of um, idea exchange and interacting with other people in the context of uh, sharing ideas and um, at one point in that conversation I made the statement uh, roughly that so we appear to be in this situation where there is no truth except the one we pick and um, you know so why get too upset about this or that and you know I kind of just glossed over that which um, I'm gonna move out of the greenhouse because it's a little windy today and it's getting some flutter flatter <laughs> um, step into the garage here um, so in that podcast, I, I, I made this statement about truth, and it's something that I kind of brought up and sort of, uh, in re-listening to it, I realized that for certain listener types, or probably most people, to make a statement like that, that there is no fundamental truth, um, is a pretty bold statement to just bring up and gloss over, and as a lot of what I was talking about kind of comes from that as a... Uh, as a piece of my general ball of philosophy, I just felt that it was worth um, digging a little deeper into what exactly I was trying to say in that moment and um, maybe giving a little bit better foundation for some of the ideas that were discussed in the last um, podcast. So um, diving, diving right in, you know, adopting this musical uh, analogy uh, to to show the power of limitations and then applying that to you know human thought and you know a system of philosophy is the same as having an instrument that plays one kind of music uh, in a sense that we we take these symbols we take these ideas and concepts and feelings and all of these things and put them into a a map so to speak of what we understand and know about the the universe uh, the, of the world of of God or of of everything in general. And just because of the way the mind works, um, that is a necessary requirement of having any kind of a system is that we need um, not only concepts but also language to communicate with others. And so that's kind of this duality between um, you know, the, the mystic or the philosopher or um, the explorer going off the maps and finding new information, um, new experiences, new um, new pieces of the puzzle and coming back and inevitably having to clothe those in some sort of a communication system, some sort of logical um, way uh, to communicate those 
in order to even make make sense of that to themselves. And um, it really stems from this idea of limitations. And um, I wanted to move a little bit past that again and get to the search for the truth. And is the truth, um, does, is it necessarily limited? Um, is there one truth that uh, that is more true or less true than other truths? I mean, it, it's kind of a funny question once you really start exploring it. I think most of us have sort of grown up with this Western mentality that, um, or, you know, it's not even an East or a West as much as it is kind of growing up in a rational uh, world. I mean, our, our whole view of the world comes out of these seeds that were planted um, in the days of the early uh, rational thinkers like, um, you know, the Greeks and the, and the Romans to some extent, and um, kind of the foundation of our mathematics and the whole rational view that we take when approaching concepts and um, that structure. So in our, in our education even, you know, we grow up where there's always a teacher's version of the book with answers in the back of the book. And we're taught for the most part that uh, here's the question and here's the answer. And our goal throughout school to some extent is to study and learn the, the correct answer and then reproduce it at a moment of necessity. So you, you study history and then you're asked a very specific question and then you, you give the answer, the truth, and that is graded. So right from the get-go, we kind of put ourselves in this situation where um, everything is examined in relationship to everything else with this sort of uh, value system of uh, correctness, which uh, is obviously a, a powerful um, system. It is kind of the basic uh, basis for our um, rational exploration of the world and led to things like the scientific method and um, a lot of the ornamentation of what I like to refer to as the church of reason. This whole rational worldview, this whole um, mythology of uh, logic um, being very much even even today, if if you are uh, if you believe in a in a bigger system of thought, if you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever you you may be, or even exploring yourself or an atheist or whatever whatever you know label you want to apply to the to the core set of ideas, um, there is this fundam fundamental um, basis of this rational Western view. So the search for truth. Um, this is something that I think we can all resonate with because we all are in a position of, of finding out for ourselves what is the truth. Is it um, the truth of the Bible and the Gospels? Is it the truth of the uh, you know, philosophers of this period or that period? Is it the truth of, I mean, what is, what is this fundamental truth? And um, in thinking about that, because I definitely at, at times in my life uh, was very much of that opinion and perspective and was trying in my own way to get to this bottom you know what what is it what it, why are we here what are the answers to these questions that we have and um, through that process you know it, it led me first I think into um, into a scientific perspective and kind of getting into uh, physics and 
um, science as a whole. And really, when I first got a taste of those things and uh, the power that they have in prediction and taking this huge world that is just so amazing and complex and deep and giving, giving a, uh, again, a, a framework, a map on which to put yourself in collecting all these pieces of data and um, was very intoxicated by that. But I, I came to a point where I, I sort of realized that this, that this other half, that this uh, philosophy or religion is in some ways more capable and in other ways less capable. Um, so, so sort of these two sides, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. I actually made a little outline for today's talk, which I never do. But it's just one of these concepts that is, um, it's big enough that I, I really need to be a little bit more structured in the, in the presentation, I think. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself now because uh, what, I, what I'm driving at now is this kind of classical versus romantic uh, view of the world. Um, classical being more, uh, and these are just definitions that have kind of been used in the, by philosophers and some other people in, um, in this quest for knowledge. But the idea is that this classical worldview is very much the statistically um, rigorous, logical uh, structure. And then a romantic view is the more um, sensational in the, in the sense that it's like uh, sensitive and um, it's about experience and these kind of less tangible things, the feelings and the emotions and the, and the general, um, the, the parts of life that we can't really put in words. And some people put stock in that and some people put stock in the, in the statistics and, and those types of things. But nonetheless, um, getting into kind of both of those systems uh, for myself personally, and this is just kind of sharing my own little foray uh, very briefly into these two lines of thought. First, the scientific, then the, the philosophical, religious type side, the mystical, whatever you want to call it. And now kind of coming to this place where having heard all these different arguments, um, when I think about truth, the, the question that I would pose to anyone who's, who's having a conversation like this, um, just, just to be playful with it is, if there were a truth, or you know, if there is a truth, let's just agree that there is a truth, okay? That there is a fundamental truth. There is a fundamental thing happening here that we can understand. Um, the question is, in what language would we put it in? Okay? So, in what tools do we have available to us as thinking, living, breathing, experiencing, um, whatever we are, you know, let's... I mean, first we even have to agree that we have that, but let's just agree that we have this capacity for understanding and sensation and what language can we put truth into. And so getting back to what I just uh, sort of talked about, um, the, the romantic and the classical, I kind of came across this concept first through um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, a classic philosophical uh, book written by Robert M. Persig, where he kind of brings these uh, two personality types to the forefront and dives into this exploration of pretty much the same topic that we're having right now, this, this quest for, for truth. And I'm going to just share some pieces from that book. And it's been a little while since I've read it, and this is just me coming from the top of my head right now, but I'm going to do my best to um, put some 
some words to some of these concepts. So Robert Persig argued that um, in life, in reality, or whatever we want to call the, the present moment, the actual thing happening, whatever that might be, that there is this, uh, as he terms it, a, a cutting edge of reality in which uh, it kind of gets back to a lot of the other podcasts that I've talked about with this idea of, you know, the interface between somethingness and nothingness. It's that actual moment when the, the guitar string, once plucked, emanates that sound. And it's the actual moment of, of being here on this, on this cutting edge of, of, you know, we kind of view it as time. But, like, this cutting moment, this cutting edge, and those experiences coming into, into being, and then immediately behind that cutting edge is this system of uh, keeping track and thinking. So, you know, uh, one of the examples he uses is the first time you ever hear your favorite song and you've never heard it before, you have no uh, pre-patterning um, of what that song is that you're listening to in your head and that first experience might be very moving and very deep and very... You know, whatever that, whatever that experience is of hearing, like, this beautiful music for the first time, um, it, it kind of gets into some of these other uh, Eastern concepts of, like, Zen mind, beginner's mind, and how the Zen mind is this kind of uh, perpetual beginner's mind where you don't have any preconceptions. And it's really that idea that having this experience at the forefront of your preconceptions is this first cutting edge. And behind that, um, again, this analogy of hearing your favorite song for the first time, as soon as you've heard it once... You know, you have this something with you. You have this keeping track of what it sounded like and the feelings that you had, and it, it immediately gets put into this next system of, of logic and understanding and interpretation. And then, you know, 10 years down the road, you might listen to that same song for the 500th time, and it's totally different than it was in those first, in those first moments. You now have all these associations and all these feelings that you can conjure up in memory of different places that you were when you first heard it and heard it again and again. And, you know, you have this whole package that goes along with this information. It's no longer the cutting edge. It is now um, in this uh, logical system. So uh, that really gets us now into this language idea, this communication, these systems, because we, we have to... I mean, at some level, we have to just sort of agree with this general concept that there is this experience happening and we can sense it in this whatever way this is of this this consciousness. But then in order to do anything with that, we have to communicate it to ourselves and to others. And in order to do that, we need a system of language or notation. And uh, this this language then, getting back to my question that I was asking, is in what language would we put the truth? So in what language do we, do we use to communicate the whole thing, including the, the cutting edge and the language itself? And if you really start thinking about that problem, which is one that I've uh, devoted more than my share of brain cells <laughs> to burning out thinking about this kind of a, this concept, um, this language problem is really sticky, and it's really the heart of what I was trying to get at yesterday. I wasn't so much trying to argue that there is no thing happening that we can ever understand, and we should just all kind of forget about it and, you know, be pacifists in our own lives. You know, there's no reason to explore. That's really not the feeling as much as just, um, from my perspective, kind of through what I'm, what I'm speaking, speaking through here and just trying to make sense of it to myself, on um, this concept that when you sit down with someone who's trying to communicate with you 
um, about their view of the world and their truth. Just this recognition that it has to come through this secondary language system. And um, that's, that's all well and good. And I think that we know how powerful language is for expressing uh, ideas. I mean, it really is the way that we're able to, with each new generation, you know, pass down the information that, that uh, the culture has and learn new stuff. And it's the way that we can actually exist in more than one time. You know, I think a lot of, you know, if you look at, I'm looking at my dog right now as an example, you know, her language, she might have these little words to pick up, but she doesn't necessarily have this whole um, uh, library of terms and ideas and things that she's going to then pass down to her next uh, generation or whatever, you know, like it really is kind of a curious capacity of humans to have these languages to, to keep all of these, to keep track of all these things and um, to to pass those down. So I think that we can, we can agree that language is very powerful and very useful. Um, tying it back into the Robert Persig uh, idea though, is that language as a system, I'm going to get into that in, in a second, but just in general, there are different ways to use these same tools. And they go back to that classical versus romantic uh, viewpoint. So the classical viewpoint, again, that kind of rigor and uh, statistics and logic and preciseness is very much, you know, a scientific approach. It's, you know, we're going to keep track of all these variables. We're going we're to keep track of this whole thing and we're going to explain everything in these terms that we're going to define and we're going to build this really kind of structure that intends to point at the truth or to, to point at whatever it is that we're talking about. And so in today's, um, you know, physics, that involves a lot of formulas and um, these these equations and concepts and theories and and that's one way to use language to point at something in a very rigorous way and then on the other side the uh, romantic view is more um, it's the poetry and it's the metaphor and it's you know I, I kinda ended last podcast with this uh, Zen haiku and that's really that in its fullest it's using these pieces of language to almost uh, not not so much get stuck with the language as try and move past the language. So um, a metaphor is saying something is something it's not. So, you know, I could say my dog is fire, <laughs> you know, uh, and that, that, that associates these different concepts in a way that makes your mind kind of um, go past the language. It's not like, you know, if I was to describe my dog from a scientific viewpoint, a rational viewpoint, I would have this whole category, categorical breakdown of, you know, the, the structures of her body and the way she fits into evolution or, you know, science in general and the taxonomies and all of these pieces that try to be assembled into this whole. And then in this class, or the romantic view is more this like poetic, you know, my dog is the wind. My dog is... You know, it's not even a dog at that point. It's just like this, this, this vitality or whatever, this um, pointing past the symbols. And, and it's interesting because religion in today's world, uh, this is just my perspective and feel free to completely disagree. But I think the real power of the, uh, you know, of a, of a theology like Christianity or really any, any of these uh, classical or... Um, I say classical in a different sense now, but these, you know, ancient handed down ideas is it is very poetic. And when you read the stories of these, uh, you know, other people and the, and the words of Jesus and all this, it's very much this poetic um, dance that is, you know, making you go past the symbols if you're reading them that way. Um, and then it's interesting, I'm just bringing this up because we, we have this kind of poetic history 
now collided with this very classical, uh, rational worldview, and that's where this kind of stickiness to these, uh, what are intended to be poetic symbols, become the facts and the categories, and it creates these very interesting problems that, uh, I mean, not even problems, but just creates these interesting phenomenon where um, something that could be interpreted in a romantic sense is now being interpreted in a classical sense, and those symbols may or may not be having the, the effect that they were originally intended to have, you know. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, I'm not trying to say that one way is right or wrong. I'm just pointing out these two different ways to interpret um, language. And, you know, for me, I kind of encountered these, you know, primarily through my own thinking, but really um, reading Robert Persig's ideas. Uh, he gets into this whole concept of quality and saying that that cutting edge you know, he, would, he didn't even want to define what that cutting edge was because then already that cutting edge is being put into the secondary system. So he came up with this whole idea of quality and, you know, this, this experience of quality is what is actually going on and then we have all these systems to think about it. I've kind of wandered all over here. I'm going to try and pull it back now to my outline. So the classical and the romantic, these different ways of using the language and approaching the language. But now let's really get to the underpinning language because remember my question here, just just putting it on the table for investigation and discussion is, um, if, if the truth were known, in what language would we put it in? And so, you know, the first step here is, is, it, is it going to be a classical view? Is it going to be scientific and statistical and using all these symbols that fit into a, into a categorical system? Or is it going to be more romantic, more mystical, more um, metaphorical and kind of getting you to orbit around these concepts and not address them directly, but direct, but um, to address them in more of these symbols that kind of lead you towards feelings or or thoughts that are not the language it itself. So these two ways. And now I want to bring up another author, another um, another book that uh, changed my thinking in a lot of ways, which is um, Douglas R. Hofstadter's um, Godel Escher Bach, The Eternal Golden Braid. Uh, which is a an amazing book. It's, it's one of the more challenging books I've ever read um, in that he really is expecting a high level of participation and really thinking about what he's uh, setting out. So the whole book is almost structured like a a textbook for a logic course in some sense. I think he was a computer scientist um, and he wrote this book in the 1980s and it won you know a lot of a lot of literary awards and um, kind of gets into a lot of these, these computer science ideas from the 1980s, but in that book, the primary, and how it ties in this conversation, the, the primary uh, thing that he was showing through example and demonstration was this concept, you know, we're talking about these language systems, these, these ways of, of processing and storing information, and what he shows in this book is that of all the systems we have, th that includes language, um, you know, the syntactic kind of words that we share, as well as, um, you know, categorizing and kind of a logical breakdown of those words. And then even beyond that, that our mathematics and these kind of fundamental systems that we have for packaging and thinking about this secondary wave after that cutting edge, the secondary, you know, making sense of everything and keeping track is really the idea, keeping track of everything, that we have these... Um, of all the tools we have, we do not have any way to have a system that can explain itself using the same system. So I'm going to say that again in a different way here. So essentially, 
if we have mathematics, or if we have language, or if we have um, any kind of logical system that we can come up with, there have to be, in order to use a system, there have to be base assumptions that we state and take for granted that cannot be examined by the system itself. Um, a way to think about this is uh, if you can remember back to high school geometry or middle school geometry and um, you know the, the opening of a geometry unit is usually these axioms which are self-evident truths and so that is like um, if you have two parallel lines they will never intersect and so we have to accept that as a self-evident truth based on this system and then from that, we can use those concepts to do all of these other things and build skyscrapers and do all of these things. However, it, it took a concept that was not defined by the, the system of geometry from that system itself. There has to be these, these first division lines that are drawn somewhat arbitrarily. I mean, obviously there's logic. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, uh, two lines never converge. And in a certain way of thinking, that's true. But we know um, this is this is this is real here, that there are other types of geometry. In fact, there are an infinite number of types of geometry. Um, there's, uh, you know, when uh, Albert Einstein uh, started putting forth his theories of relativity, he needed curved space in order to uh, demonstrate how gravity works in space. And so from that, we have a, a non-Euclidean geometry. The geometry we're familiar with of squares and triangles and parallel lines that never intersect is called Euclidean geometry going all the way back to Euclid in the, you know, like first century BC or whenever that was. Um, and we, we now have these other geometries that actually predict certain phenomenon better uh, with these weird curved space-times and these non, um, to us, non-commonsensical things, but it, it, it is the same type of system being defined that can then do all these other great things, but that first... Um, axioms, those first assumptions that we're taking for granted have to be there. Um, and that's true of, uh, so, so Robert, uh, I'm sorry, Douglas Hofstadter, in his book, he says, of all the systems that we have, pure, uh, as, as far as uh, language and, and um, logic, the purest that we have, arguably, the purest system that humans have ever come up with is number theory, just pure number theory. And this is very basic, like arithmetic, like one plus one equals two, and you know, just these kind of um, very basic uh, number processes. And what he shows in this book, and you know, it's actually one of my friends is borrowing it. I really wish I had it to just kind of reread because I've already forgotten the, uh, you know, the, the examples that he uses to really prove this. But he does. He shows that even this number theory, the the theory itself is based on these certain uh, ideas that we have to accept without analysis from that system itself in order to use that system. I know this is kind of getting to a point where it's sounding really just esoteric and out there, but the, but the heart of this matter is is that any language that we can come up with, including just pure numbers, uh, can't reference itself. You can't put a box inside itself. And in order to have a thought process, you need this system of boxes, no matter, no matter how you're using them, even if they are a, uh, a classical or a romantic type of um, approach to the problem. Uh, this is the power of limitations from yesterday.
by limiting something, we can then communicate it. We can, we can make a, a zero and a one, and we can then start arranging those things. It's that first division. It's that I am, you know, the uh, to be or not to be. It's that, that first division that we have to make, and then we can do all, the, all of these things. But the idea being that uh, no system can contain its system in itself. And just to give a little example of this, to may, maybe make it a little bit more concrete as far as language is concerned, is that there's this curious problem that when, you, when you're talking in general, uh, language is very powerful for communicating ideas. You know, my dog is sitting right here. Okay, and that's true enough, right? I mean, who's going to argue with that? That's truth, right? Um, the language is powerful in that way that it's able to separate my dog from the ground it's standing on and all of these things that so we can think about it. But as soon as you take that same language system and turn it on itself, you get all these weird paradoxes um, similar to if you take a video camera and a monitor that shows what that camera is videotaping and then you turn that camera on the monitor, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, you kind of get this infinite hall of mirrors where it's just this infinite regress, this weird paradox of just the thing is trying to show the thing that it's trying to show the thing that's trying to show the thing and you get this infinite regress. It's the same of looking in two mirrors, you know, two opposing mirrors. You're seeing something reflected in the thing that's reflecting the thing that's reflecting the thing. You can't have, you know, you can't have a mirror reflect itself, right? I mean, that's the idea. You can't have language reflect itself because in a way, a language or a thought or a mathematics, whatever that system is, is a mirror. It's trying to reflect and, um, and, and express the world, but it can't itself be expressed on its own terms. So getting to this, uh, the language paradox, um, I mean, a classic example is this sentence is false. And if, if, if it is false, then it's true. <laughs> you know, yeah, think about that for a while. And that's really kind of the problem that we're playing with here is that this, that language has these, these loopholes and language and mathematics and whatever it is. So when you start talking about, um, bigger concepts and these deeper truths and even, you know, formulas that try and, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking has even gone so far as to write a book called The Theory of Everything that kind of follows this scientific uh, rational mind's pursuit of the one formula that describes all phenomenon. And it is really overlooking this fact that, you know, that formula inherently and fundamentally can't say anything about itself. The formula can't produce itself. I'll try and come back and make a couple more analogies and examples, but really the thing to take away from this is that um, in order to communicate, we have to use a system. And that's, that is this limitation, and that's the power of these limitations. This system is, systems are inherently limited because that's what makes it not just a, a void, you know? Um, and so, you know, really kind of wrapping things back up to yesterday, this is kind of where I'm coming from when I make a, a statement like, you know, when you sit down and you listen to somebody and you hear them talk about the world and talk about their views and, and uh, you know, religion and science and whatever it might be and the way it is and the truth, um, knowing that they're, they're never going to be able to be communicating that directly with you just because of the way our, our, our brains are structured that our, our brains can't process themselves. You can, I mean, to take this in a more like Zen type way, um, you know, you, you're, you can't touch the tip of this finger with the tip of this finger. You know, you can't look yourself in, in your own eyes without using a mirror or some other secondary thing. You can't bite your own teeth. Um, 
or the the idea here, this concept is this uh, understanding of how experience is this kind of ever transitory thing that we really can't say anything about until we do say something about it. And then as soon as we've said something about it, we get stuck with the limitations of the systems we're using to communicate it. And the idea being that because of that, there's, I mean, for me at least, it, it completely reduced this urgency of needing to know this fundamental basis of getting to the heart, the truth, the, you know, the, the what it is, the, the reasons, the, all of this because uh, I mean I hope that there's in some way this is all kind of making making some sense what I'm getting at here that 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 the knowledge that our our tools for approaching the truth are limited is the knowledge that we'll never be able to use those tools to contain it you know if you were to try and contain all of the world in one you know, maybe you can have some formula that, uh, you know, can predict everything, but there'd have to be so many little pieces and so many expressions and so many uh, little, I mean, the, the thing would have to be keeping track of itself as much as it was trying to keep track of, of everything else. And in a way, I mean, that's kind of the way computers work. As computers get faster and faster, they also have to have more and more memory to keep track of all the things that they're processing. So even though computers today are so many times more fast than, the, than they were even 10 years ago, the amount of storage that has to come along with all of this new processing power just grows in equal amount. And that's kind of the idea here is that, uh, you know, the, the smaller and smaller particles get, here, I mean, here's another little interesting piece. I'm going to go check on Huxley real quick, just make sure that he's uh, still in his crib. But um, getting back to this rational worldview, uh, I've really, I enjoyed when I learned that uh, the word atom is a word that uh, the ah at the beginning of a word in a lot of languages, uh, especially the older languages, ah is usually a negative. So ah at the beginning of a word means it's the, it's the not whatever. So ah and then Tomas which is interesting because of the name, you know, Tom, Thomas and, and all the associations there. But a Tomas, the word uh, Tomas means uh, cutting or cuttable or divisible. And so a Tomas is this atom and it is the non-cuttable. And the idea there is that in the ancient world, uh, their methods for exploring, you know, what's here? What is this stuff? What is, you know, what is anything like? Let's get to the bottom of it. And you, what do you do? You break it apart and you see what it's made of. And then you, f you have this new stuff. You say, well, what's this made of? And you break that apart and you get these new little pieces and you break and break and break. In the old world, the, uh, you know, the, the width of the knife was really the, the atom, was the non-cuttable. So that is as small as you could get with the rational mind of that day was this, this atom, this, this last division of the particle because you don't have any instrument small enough to make another... Uh, separation and in today's world we have all of these you know particle accelerators and you know colliding things and getting these new readings and all these particles and right now I mean the big pursuit is for these like you know the Higgs boson and the you know all these up quarks and down quarks and just this whole uh, menagerie of these quantum particles when at one point we just had the atom the, the non-cuttable and then we have these little smaller parts and they were the smallest piece then you break those apart and 
you can go as deep and as deep and as deep and as deep and, and you're never gonna I mean at least we haven't yet ever come to that real smallest particle you take two Hig, Higgs bosons you know by whatever amazing means we come up with and you slam those together fast enough and I mean what comes out of that reaction uh, you know we're chasing this uh, this division as deep as it goes but it's the same problem of the universe itself you know us being the universe through you know the, our eyes are the eyes of the universe looking at itself and we're trying to catch it we're trying to somehow um, it's the same re self -refer referential problem it's the universe trying to run up behind itself and say boo and as deep as you want to chase it it's gonna keep running <laughs> you know it's like it's trying to catch catch yourself um, in the in the opposite direction but the same idea you know we 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 looked up at the stars then we got telescopes and we looked out and we saw deeper and then we got bigger telescopes we look out and we see even deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and we're trying to find well where's the end what is the you know what is the thing that is all things and it keeps going it keeps getting you know it keeps running away from itself in a sense and it's the same project or the same um the same thing as looking in a mirror infinitely or turning a, a video monitor on itself um, you know you're using the you're using the thing itself to try and get a final division of the thing itself you're trying to catch the thing itself with the thing itself i mean my what is my real purpose for even talking about this right now it's just it's just one of those really cool things i don't know these interesting pieces that are unexamined in our um in our uh, in our worldview, you know that we we're on this quest and we're using these languages and the systems and and thinking, but we we haven't necessarily examined these basic assumptions of any any kind of system that we're using. Um, so to conclude here, uh, I love it when things work out this way. Um, I just got a text message from my friend, the same friend that I was talking about in the last podcast, who. Uh, we grew up together and uh, kind of went apart for a little little while and kind of have reconvened. And um, he must have just sensed that I was grasping at straws here, so he sent me um, this beautiful C.S. Lewis quote on the in the same vein of this conversation. And I'd like to just conclude with it because I think it really it sums up a lot of this idea in a very eloquent and and poetic way. And um, I'll just I'll just read it and then I'll I'll leave it for your interpretation but you cannot go on seeing through things forever the whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it it is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque how would it be if you saw through the garden too it is no use trying to see through first principles if you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Ha! <laughs> yep, can't, can't say it much better than that. So I think I will end on that note. And um, thank you, uh, Landon, for providing that uh, beautiful gem um, from C.S. Lewis. Um, with that, I think I'm going to conclude and um, thank thank everyone for listening. And uh, you know, um, at this point, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there, no, no one ever used to listen to these. And now that I kind of know that there's a couple of people out there listening, um, I'd love to just have um, any kind of feedback or you know, if there's a topic that we 
you'd like to have a, a one-sided discussion on or anything like that, I mean, feel free to, uh, to just ping me and bring, bring to me what's on your mind. Um, and we can maybe kind of make this more of a dialogue than anything. Uh, I can kind of share the question and then kind of share uh, my, my thinking through it just in that same open spirit. So, uh, yeah, um, with that, I will conclude and uh, until next time. Thank you.